0: Good morning. So I figured you'll enjoy at least one Shapiro today. I'll do the best I can. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Isaiah chapter 49. Start uh, perhaps in a less conventional book. We are studying the Gospel of Luke, but uh, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 49 that might uh, put nice perspective on the passage we have in the Gospel of Luke. Isaiah 49 and verse 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered you could translate that also the captives the captives by law or the lawful captive be delivered and the expected answer is no way you can't deliver the prey from the mighty if you have a lion or uh, i remember even as a young boy we were told Don't take the food from the dog or you'll get bitten. You can play with the dog at all other times, but when the dog is eating, you don't want to get between him and his food. Of course, the same with the lion or the prey of the mighty will not be taken. You can't take prey from the mighty. Or the captives of the righteous be delivered. Could you take away captives from a person who has the captive in a lawful way? You can't. They belong to them by law. The law will defend the right of the one who has the captive. But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children Now, in this particular passage, it could be that the prophet has in mind also the captives in Babylon and the impossibility of delivering uh, the captives of Judah from Babylon, but in our passage, we'll apply it, and perhaps there is the greater prophecy here of us being delivered from the power of Satan, a greater delivery of the Jews from Babylon. It says... That uh, Jesus came to turn us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. It says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It says in Hebrews, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's the message today will be about God delivering us from the power of Satan, a task that is impossible for all but God himself. So turn now to the Gospel of Luke, where we've been studying in chapter 11. And we'll read the passage before us today. Luke chapter 11, and starting in verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when a demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So the first thing we have in this passage is an example of deliverance from the power of Satan. There was a man, and he was demon-possessed. It says that it was mute, referring to the demon, and that refers to the particular effect that the demon had on the person. Um, I have never seen a demon in my life. Maybe I've seen some occasions of, of demon possessions. We know very little about them. Uh, It seems that the particular strategy of uh, Satan today is to uh, kind of stay undercover so we can't see him as well. But uh, this particular demon had a power to keep a man from speaking. So the man could not speak as long as he was demon-possessed. But when Jesus cast out the demon from this man, the man was able to speak. It was a miracle. People knew that this man had no ability to speak. They probably knew he was demon-possessed and brought him to Jesus to save him from the demon. And when the man spoke, there was evidence that Jesus has cast out the demon from this man. An example of Jesus delivering a person from the power of Satan. Now, it seems that there were some detractors of Jesus in the crowd. It says, the multitudes marveled. So, the great majority of the people were amazed by the miracle that Jesus did. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Some people said Jesus, was, Jesus' ability of casting out the demon demonstrates that Satan is residing inside of Jesus because only Satan could give that power to cast out the demons out of these people. So they were saying Jesus himself must be a servant of Satan because he has the power to cast out demons. That's what they were claiming. And uh, others, and by the way, we know from our uh, parallel passage, and look, that these are the Pharisees, so the people who are accusing Jesus of this. These are among the religious leaders of Israel who we find have become antagonistic to Jesus. They didn't like Jesus, so it was an attack against Jesus. It says others, uh, perhaps part of the same group, uh, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. That is, they said, you know, what Jesus did is nothing. Casting out a demon, that's no big deal. You know, that's no evidence that he has the power of God or that he's a servant from God. Show us a real miracle. That's what they're saying, uh, asking for him a sign from heaven. Show us something that shows you really did come from God. We're not impressed by casting out of this demon. So uh, Jesus responds. He mainly responds to the first group here. Uh, in this study next week, we'll see him responding to the second group. But, uh, what we see, here, Jesus is defending the evidence of his miracle. Okay, he doesn't bite you and say, oh, okay, this wasn't impressive. I'll try to come up with something better. Oh, oh no, you know, you know, maybe they have something here against me. I better think of some other miracles that I can do, uh, to show, to show something else. He stands by the evidence of his miracle. Uh, first thing he does, he points out Uh, the lack of logic in the argument. Why would Satan be casting out Satan? It doesn't make sense. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought down to desolation. And a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. I mean, it's suicide to be fighting against yourself. In fact, in... History, often an empire would dominate a region until a civil war came and they were fighting each other and that weakened them enough that some other empire was ever able to overcome them. It would be foolish of Satan to come out and start casting out other demons who are his servants. It doesn't make sense, the argument they were saying, the argument they were bringing against Jesus. Uh, The second thing Jesus says is, their argument was inconsistent with what they themselves were teaching. And uh, I'll show you how that comes out of verse 19. Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So now Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here. It's very possible that when he says, By whom do your sons cast them? It's possible that it's the physical children. But it's also very possible these are their disciples. These are people that they've been training to be religious like they are. And, uh, and they've been teaching them that demons are evil. And if you can cast out demons, that would be a good thing. And we actually have examples of that in the book of Acts. I don't know if you remember the seven sons of Siva. That that's what they were doing. They walked went around trying to cast out demons. They didn't have a lot of power, and, and the case that's brought up, they actually become overcome themselves by, by the demon. But it shows that they, the Pharisees were teaching that it would be a good thing to go about casting out demons. It would be a sign of godliness. If you actually had the ability to cast out demons. That's why he says, by whom do your sons do it? You approve it, you, you say that it would be a good thing, and now I do it, and you're claiming it's an evidence of Satan being in me? I mean, come on, you know, you're, you're playing both fields here. You can't, you can't say it's a good thing when your sons are doing it and it's a bad thing when I'm doing it. Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, Jesus is not, uh, th- these are not people who are mistaken. Oh, these are not people who, uh, really think that what Jesus is doing is an evidence of Satan or that it's not a big enough miracle because it says, but he knowing their thoughts said to them, uh, he's just, he's just trying to wake them up, wake up the people around him that these arguments that they're bringing against his miracle, the evidence that he has, is insubstantial. Uh, it's not, um, uh, it's not, it's not evidence, uh, it's not a, a valid argument against the sign that he's showing them. The, the last thing he's saying, and maybe they'll bring it all together, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What Jesus has been doing has been to really demonstrate to them what it is that Jesus was doing. Jesus has been bringing the kingdom of God to them. In fact, he was the king of God, the, the king of heaven, uh, the king of the kingdom of God. He was making it Possible for them to now become part of the kingdom of God. And they were rejecting that sign. Uh, let me read for you from uh, John 6, verse 27. And uh, it says, there it says, this was another occasion where Jesus did one of the more famous miracles um, in the scriptures, and that was the feeding of the 5,000. And after he fed the 5,000, the people were so excited about the fact Jesus just fed them, they kept coming back. But they came for the wrong reason. They wanted more food. And Jesus is saying, you're missing, you're missing what I'm really about. You're, you missed the real value of the miracle. And he says this, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus is saying, the reason I'm doing these miracles, the reason I fed you, was to show you who I was, to show you I am the one that God wants you to believe in. I didn't come to give you food to nourish your bodies, I came to give you food for eternal life. In the same way, Jesus wasn't casting out this demon out of this person because that is how Jesus was going to accomplish his salvation of mankind. He wasn't going to go and start casting one by one uh, demons out of every person on earth. It was a sign. There was a real value to that person. He was delivered from from Satan. There was a real value for the people Jesus fed. The, the uh, stomachs really became filled. But the true value that Jesus had could only be obtained by people believing in Jesus. As uh, Nessia recited for us for with the heart man believeth to righteousness for whoever shall call upon the name of the lord will be saved what jesus was doing what the casting of miracles was doing it was a big pointer down at jesus this is the person that's going to save you from your sins or from satan this is the person in whom you need to believe and that's why jesus is defending that miracle when there are Uh, trying to tear down the evidence of what Jesus just did. Jesus stands by it because he knows that by believing, by the people following this pointer that God was showing to him, this is how people can be saved. That's why he was defending it. So let me give you a first application from the passage today. And uh, this might be the main application uh, to believers. And the question to you is, so that was in in that day, by Jesus going around and casting out demons and doing other miracles, that is how God was putting a pointer to Jesus so people would know this is the person they need to believe in in order to be saved. What does God do today? What sign is there for people today to believe in Jesus, to know that he is the one They need to believe in, in order to be saved. And the answer is, I'm looking at a room full of them. Uh, Jesus said this. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are the miracle that God is doing today that is supposed to show people that they need to believe in Jesus. Jesus is changing your life. He has delivered you from the power of Satan so that you can live a life that glorify God, a life that is miraculous in nature so that people who see that life will realize, huh, Jesus is the one that saves you from your sins. And I can attest to that because that was part of my own testimony. When I walked through the doors of this church, of course, it was in a different location at the time, it was not in search of God. And most of you know what it was I was in search of. But God woke me up when I was in Sunday school and I saw people searching through the scriptures desiring to know what it was that God wanted them to do. There was an evidence of the work of God. People do not naturally seek to know what God wants them to do. We talked about that earlier um, earlier in the Galatians class. There is People do uh, practice religious things um, it's called in Galatians the weak uh, and beggarly elements of the world or something of that kind. I mean, they will go to churches, but it's to gain points with God. They'll do certain uh, sacraments and things that they feel will earn them some credit with God, but they don't truly want to do the will of God in their lives. They want to do their own thing. They just want some credit, something that will get them to heaven eventually. But here I saw people who in their heart loved God and desired to know what is that thing God wants me to do so that I can do it. And that woke me up and made me realize, huh, maybe there's something here. You know, maybe there's something that I need to be seeking after. Your life is a true evidence of the work of God and it is a true pointer to Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know about you, but it makes me want to live that life more. I want to be a good pointer to Christ. It's not my miracle. It's his. The work he's doing in my life. And uh, like in the case here, Jesus was defending the evidence. He saw value in what he was doing because that is how people were getting saved. The, the evidence that pointed to him. In the same way, we should try to protect that evidence. We should strive to live a life that that demonstrate the power of God in our life, but also we shouldn't let people get Scots-free dismissing it. People might come up with, with uh, arguments or in some way attack our testimony, and uh, we should stand by and p- profess that this is the work of God that is happening in our life. I, I try to do th- two things. I try to live the kind of the life that God wants me to live, and I also... Try to make sure people know, how is it that I can live a life like that? It's not by my own power. It is by the power of God. I defend the evidence uh, as best I can. It's a pointer to Christ. Okay, let's look at the rest of the passage, starting in verse 21. And uh, we have a couple of uh, parables. It it could be that parables are not the best way of, of saying it, because Jesus doesn't actually say these are parables. But these are things, um, stories that communicate an important truth that Jesus wants his listeners to understand. So the first one says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So first of all, what is Jesus talking about? Who is this strong man that Jesus is talking about? Anybody knows? Sorry? The devil. devil. Good. Yeah, he's talking about Satan here, calling Satan a strong man. How is Satan a strong man? Well, first of all, He is the greatest created being that ever was made. He was the one that was leading the worship of God in heaven. He was the the, uh, cherub that covers. And as I understand it to be, he was the one that was, if you would, guiding the worship of God in heaven. There There is no greater created being than Satan himself. Now, the reference to all of these things should be the fact that Here, Jesus is going around saving people from Satan. So, that means we are the people who need to be saved from Satan. Well, Satan is a strong man. Remember, we talked at the beginning, who can deliver the prey from the mighty? This is the one we need to be delivered from Satan, the greatest created being that ever was made. Then it says he is fully armed. Well, you can be a strong man... And then you can be a strong man with a sword. Now, the sword didn't make you stronger, but the sword allows you to do more than you could do without the sword. What is this armor that Satan has against us? Besides for the fact that he's already far stronger than we are, what is this armor that he has? Well, let me suggest to you that that's our sins against God. Satan could do far less against us unless we sinned against God. The first thing that Satan did is he led Adam and Eve to rebel against Satan. He led them into eating of the fruit that God said they could not eat of. And when they did that, that is when they lost God's protection. And they really fell into Satan's arm. Uh, we talked about lawfully. They, you can't deliver a captive who is summoned by law. Well, in a sense... You could say mankind is lawfully Satan's because we belong to God. God gave us a, a perfect universe. One commandment that we couldn't break, we decided to break that commandment and follow Satan. So Satan could say, hey, they're mine. They left you. They didn't want to follow you. You could say we're lawfully Satan. That's that's the, the consequence of our sins against God is we do we no longer deserve God's protection. Satan can say, and in fact, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He uses our sins against us. They're his sword, if you would. Something that gives him an extra power against us. When, uh, when he contends for us against God. These are people who sinned against you, God. They deserve nothing from you. It's an extra sword that he has against us. <clears throat> he guards his own palace. What is Satan's palace? It's the world in which we live. Okay, we don't, people don't realize that they live in Satan's world. People often complain about this world, you know, there's all these people doing bad things, there's all this bad stuff happening there, and they're blaming God for it. This is not God's world. This is Satan's world. Yes, God created it, but we've handed it to Satan. Let, let me start by quoting Satan himself and what he says about it. Okay, and... Then we'll move on because we don't want to believe just what Satan says. But this is what Satan said. Uh, This is in one of the temptations when Satan tempted Jesus. It says, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is what Satan really did with Jesus. He took Jesus up on a high mountain, showed Jesus in a moment all the kingdoms in this world. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and the glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Satan says this is all his, and he gives it to whomever he wishes. And you know what? Jesus doesn't dispute that. Okay, Jesus refuses to worship him. But he doesn't dispute that this world is Satan's world and he gives it to whomever he wishes. And in fact, to not quote Satan anymore because you're in dangerous territory when you do that, Jesus says, now the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus said that Satan is the prince or ruler of this world. In Ephesians it says. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But against principalities. Against powers. Against the rulers of the darkness. Of this age. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness. In the heavenly places. The rulers of the darkness. Of this age. Talking about Satan and demons. First John. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He rules this world. Uh, If you would, let's turn to uh, perhaps one of the most striking passages about this topic. That's in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to uh, Jews in Israel, and, uh, you know, one thought is this is the one nation under earth that could claim, you know, we are God's nation. So if anyone could say we're free from Satan, these would be the people that could make a statement like that. Oh, Satan has no power for us. In fact, we'll see this. They'll be trying to say it as Jesus is trying to point to them the reality of their spiritual state. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus wants to free them. And we'll see it's from sin, but it's also from Satan. The two really go hand in hand. Because sin, our sin, is the power that Satan has against us in separating us from God. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? They're refusing to accept what Jesus is saying, that they need to be free. They think they're fine. They don't think that they're under bondage to sin or to the devil. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And uh, just just to stop there, but I thought Jesus is trying to show them the fact that they are under Satan's power, or that they are under slavery uh, to sin, by the evidence of their own life. Look, you sin. The fact you sin shows that you're in bondage to sin or in bondage to the devil. And let me go ahead and quote you another verse in that regard from First uh, John it says he who sins is of the devil. So kind of corresponds to what we just read. For the devil has sinned from the beginning for this purpose the son of God has was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So again our sin shows shows the evidence that Satan is in control, because if God would be in control, we wouldn't sin. If we were under God's control, we wouldn't be sinning. The fact you sin shows Satan's influence. Now, I want to be careful, realize as believers, Jesus came to save us from Satan, to save us from sin, and we've experienced his salvation, and one part of his salvation is still in progress, and that's why there's still sin in our lives. But the point here is the need to be saved. It's the need to be saved. We're not questioning uh, Jesus' effectiveness of saving, but rather the need of people to really be saved from Satan and from sin. Let me continue in in John. Uh, Jesus is continuing here. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Who is their father? Yeah, the devil. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Are they they getting what Jesus is saying? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Who is their father? The devil. This is the one nation on earth that could claim to be God's children, which they're trying to do here. In fact, they will in the next passage. Then they said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. they getting it? If God were your father, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is trying to wake them up to the reality of the bondage to Satan and to sin and their need to be saved. Uh, the, last, the last phrase in the passage, you could turn back to the passage in Luke, is, his goods are in peace are satan's good in peace does he have full dominion over his goods who are his goods by the way us people are satan's good are they in peace he has them in his pocket jesus is talking to them trying to wake them up and like no 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 we're okay we're okay really they're in peace they think they're fine they think they need nothing well praise the lord uh that's just the first verse of the story But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, who is the one stronger than Satan? Jesus, right? And that's what this passage is all about. Jesus is demonstrating that he is stronger. He can come out and he can cast out the demon out of this man. When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted. Okay, well, this is interesting. We can understand When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, yeah, well, that's Jesus. He's stronger than Satan. Yes, Satan is the greatest created being, but Jesus is the creator. So, stronger than any creature, Uh, and and power is demonstrated. What does it mean that he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted? Let me suggest to you that the answer is in Colossians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 13. Colossians 2, 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So he talks here about saving us from our sins again, having Wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So it's talking about Jesus' work on the cross. Having disarmed, and that's a key word, disarmed, it means to take the weapons out of the hands of, right? Having disarmed, principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And that's, you know, one of these things that, you know, kind of hard to envision. Here's the cross. Here's Jesus dying on the cross, being tortured to the limit of human endurance, and all our sins being heaped upon him. And uh, it says here he was triumphing over them in it. Jesus was using it as, you know, aha, I won. Uh, making a public spectacle of them, of, of the rulers of this world, of Satan and his powers, <coughs> and disarming them. How so? Well, again, remember the fact that the power that Satan had against us, or the real weapon, was a sin against God. As long as Adam and Eve were in the center of God's will, there was more or less nothing Satan could do to them. All he could do is maybe send a temptation their way. He couldn't kill them because they haven't rebelled against God. They were still connected to God. He had very, very limited power over them. It was by getting them to sin against God that all of a sudden they were really in Satan's power. They had no protection. Now, God is sovereign and he can still provide protection. But generally speaking, now we were without protection because we were in our sins. Well, How does Jesus disarm Satan? Well, he takes all our sins and nails them to the cross or pays for them on the cross. And instead, he gives us his righteousness. So now we can once again stand united with God. And then Satan has no power over us. He disarmed them. He took away Satan's armor. Praise the Lord. Okay. Okay disarmed them. And here's another interesting one, going back to Luke chapter 11. So, a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. What does that mean? Divides the spoils. Well, usually, if I take something from somebody, I take it for myself. You know, you'd expect that Jesus would come and it takes Satan's good, and he would just take him to himself. But here he says, he divides the spoils. What does it mean? Well, let me suggest that it means what it says in John 10:10: 10, 10. "The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the devil. OK? When he took us from God, it wasn't for our good, OK? But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Did Jesus take us from the devil for our good? Yeah, yeah, it's for our good. So he's sharing the spoils with us. We enjoy Jesus' victory over the devil. It's a good thing for us, okay? So, praise the Lord. Okay, Uh, they. The last verse we had in this passage, in the particular uh, three verses I read, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me uh, scatters. It's a warning for these people who have been attacking Jesus. Uh, they, would, they would think um, that uh, they could be simply not with Jesus, or maybe it's, uh, it's people who are just trying to not side themselves with Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you're not with me, you're against me. There's only two camps here. You know, if you're not with me, you're in the camp that I'm at war with. And that's Satan's camp. If you don't gather with me, were they gathering with Jesus? No, they were scattering. He who does not gather with me scatters. So they were in opposition. It's really a warning to these people who are attacking the evidence of Jesus' miracles. Uh, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather With me, scatter. You're setting yourself in opposition against me. And that's not a good place to be. Okay. Uh, The last passage that we have here, again, I mentioned there were two parables or two stories here. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes... He finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Why is Jesus telling this story? What's the purpose of it? Well, it's probably not just for this one person who had the demon coming out of him. So what he's effectively saying is it's possible for a demon to come back into our house. But it's not just for the sake. And we know that for Matthew, because Jesus continues with the word, so shall it be with this generation. What Jesus is saying here is, not everybody is going to enjoy this salvation that I'm bringing to you. Uh, he says, narrow is the way that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are that go that way. Not everybody will accept what Jesus is doing for them. Jesus came to offer salvation to people. But Jesus is also what some people term a gentleman. He will not force upon himself against a person. So, he frees us from Satan. He comes and removes Satan's power from us in the cross. He made it possible for everybody to be saved. But he will not force a person into salvation. He will not force himself upon a person. He will not force a person to accept him. And so, uh, perhaps the key words here, why is it that that the demon can come back into a person, it says when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. It's a welcoming place for the demon. The demon comes and he visits the house or the person that the demon was driven out of, and he sees everything is in order for him to come in. In Matthew it adds the statement that it was empty. Well, there's a problem. It shouldn't have been empty. Jesus took the demon out of the man so that someone else can come into the man. Who is that someone else? Yeah, it's God himself. Jesus didn't just come to free us from the devil. It says, uh, the verse I, I read at the beginning one of the verses I read from the beginning. It says, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Didn't j- Jesus didn't just come to take the power of Satan away from us. It's to give us a new power or a new reality or really a new relationship, a relationship with God. <clears throat> and uh, when somebody puts God away, even though Jesus has done everything necessary to save the man, and a person says, well, you know, no, thank you, I'm not interested. I, I I will not have this man to reign over me. Jesus will not come into the man. And as a, a result is, Satan will say, well, I guess I'm welcome back in. And the person, it says, the end of the person is worse than it was at the beginning. Uh, let me just read, read to you... Uh, one possible verse about that, the end is worse than the beginning. Hebrews 6 says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So here's someone who's been given this opportunity. He's understood uh, the gospel. He realized what it is that Jesus has done for him to save him and he's saying, you know, no, thank you. I'm not interested. Well, eventually there's no more opportunity. It says God is not going to work anymore in the life of that person. God has done everything he could and the person has still put him out. It says at that point, it's going to be worse for that person because there's nothing holding Satan back anymore. God is not working in that life anymore. Satan can can do all the destruction he wants to in that life because God is done with that life. There's nothing else God will be doing with it anymore. So, it's actually going to be worse for that person. Now, uh, in closing, let me go back to that thought of what it is that God is offering us. Okay, we We said, God is a gentleman, he will not force himself upon a person, and a lot of people will say, we don't want God, and what God has to offer to us, so maybe this is an application to you, if you're not a believer uh, today, and you've been putting God off, because like, you know, what will God want out of me, I don't want to be, you know, a slave to God, and have to do everything God wants me to do, now let me just share uh, a few verses, To maybe help you appreciate what is it that God is offering you. And uh, the first one, I'll just read these. You can listen. But I'll go ahead and and say where they come from in case you want to check them out for yourself. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Two things out of that first. First of all, think who it is that is offering you this relationship. It is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. It's an opportunity to come to grips with the creator of the universe, to have a real relationship with him. The same one is the one that will then dwell with you. Uh, the second is, you know, he's doing it to help you. Right? It says to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive or give life to the heart of the contrite ones. He's called in the New Testament the comforter or the helper. God wants to come in to lift you up, not to put you down. Uh, second verse, Ezekiel thirty six, twenty seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgment and do them. Uh, we're afraid, like I said, uh, sometime of the idea of God coming as a lawgiver and giving us a list of rules and things we have to do and we strive and try to do them and, and, and we can't or it's really hard. Well, that's not what it says. He says he's going to put his spirit within us. And it is the Spirit that gives us the desire to do the things of God. Well, We started talking about it in Galatians. We'll talk about it more. God changes us from the inside. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. But God changes what I want to do. He gives me the desires of God in my heart. That's part of the miracle we talked about that God is doing in your life and through whom He testifies to His power to the world. Everything you do for God... I should be out of a real desire to do it for God because God puts His Spirit in you and now you're not doing these things because you have to, because you want to do them. And these are all good and wonderful things because He's a holy and perfect God. But you do them out of a desire to do it because He comes into you and He changes you. And He makes you, makes you like that. So you do it out of the desire of your heart. And then perhaps the last verse. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba is the Hebrew word for daddy, and that's the relationship that God wants to have with you. And he wants to come into you to have that relationship with you. Not as a master, you haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. God just wants to make you part of his family. Let's thank him. Lord, uh, we, we do want to stop and thank you for uh, your work of salvation. We think of the uh, impossibility... Of us being saved from the power of Satan, uh, from any uh, human perspective, we thank you that uh, you sent one who is mightier than the devil, and he completely disarmed him by uh, putting, uh, taking, taking care of our sins and opening the gates of heaven uh, to us. And uh, we we pray now, Lord, for anybody here who hasn't understood that good uh, offer that God has for him, what it is that God really wants. Uh, to, to give uh, to them a, a true relationship with him, a sonship, being part of the family of God. Lord, we ask that you might uh, open their hearts to receive you and that you might even do it today. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.